as you're sitting there, I want you to think of the most awkward, humiliating, embarrassing episode in your life. I invite you to bring to your mind something you did, something you said that haunts you. It's not humorous, it's humiliating. Just the thought of it makes you cringe. Can you think of it? Now, whatever it is, you're likely a little upset with me for stirring it up at this moment. It might be a bit ugly. It probably has some elements of guilt and shame to it. All right, with that in mind, now I want you to think about this. How do you treat that episode from your past? Meaning, how often do you bring it up in conversation? In fact, when was the last time you personally mentioned it in a conversation? I imagine that the more awkward the story, the less you tend to talk about it. The more uncomfortable it makes you feel, the more uncommon the occurrence of sharing it. Well, what's true about the stranger stories in your life is also true about the stranger stories in the Bible. The Bible is filled with all kinds of incredible stories about all kinds of incredible events from the lives of all kinds of incredible people. And we have all kinds of classes and sermons where we unpack these stories and apply them to our own lives. However, tucked away in the pages of the Bible are some tales that rarely get told. Tales that are so awkward and so uncomfortable that we tend to avoid them. Well, today we're beginning a series where we're going to shine a light on those stories. We selected four of the stranger stories in the Bible. Four stories they likely didn't tell you in Sunday school. And we're going to confront their content and learn their lessons. Now, we're going to begin this series by looking at one of the most controversial passages in the entire Bible. It's only two verses long, yet it's one of the most cited passages by anyone wanting to ridicule Scripture. In fact, when someone wants to mock the Bible or mock the God of the Bible, this is their go-to passage. It's found in the Old Testament in the second chapter of the book known as Second Kings. So it's Second Kings chapter 2, beginning at verse 23. It says this, From there... Uh, Elisha went up to Bethel. As he was walking along the road, some boys came out of the town and jeered at him. Get out of here, baldy, they said. Get out of here, baldy. He turned around, looked at them, and called down a curse on them in the name of the Lord. And then two bears came out of the woods and mauled 42 of the boys. Wow, that is interesting. It's not exactly the kind of Bible story you want to read your kids as you tuck them in bed at night, is it? It's a story that is rarely taught in Sunday school. Now, let me take a moment and quickly speak to those who have a long history in the church. Let me ask you, how many Sunday school pageants have you been to over the years? For decades, you've sat and watched as cute little children in cute little costumes acted out all kinds of cute little stories. Little girls wearing angels' wings, little boys wearing donkey costumes, little girls wearing dark flowing wigs, little boys wearing fuzzy gray beards. In all of those productions, in all of those years, have you ever seen this story depicted on a stage? 
Okay, okay, boys and girls, let's do this, act out the story of Elisha and the children. Billy, uh, you be Elijah the prophet. Johnny and Charlie, you be the uh, raging wild bears. The rest of the class will be the innocent little children that get eaten. Okay, boys, go ahead, start attacking. This is one of the stranger stories. One of those stories they don't often tell you in Sunday school. But it happened. It's in the Bible. And it's in the Bible for a reason. But what exactly happened? And what precisely is the reason why it was included in the Bible? That's what we're going to spend the next few moments looking into. And to do that, we're going to look at two competing narratives. We're going to look at what the critics commonly claim, and then we're going to look at what the scriptures actually describe. So first, let's look at what the critics commonly claim. Now, in my studies, I came across a statement that is as creative as it is concise when it comes to representing what the average mocker thinks when it comes to today's passage. I have to admit, when I first read this statement, it made me laugh out loud. In the common critic's mind, this story from the life of Elijah is the story of how a mild personal offense by some innocent little children was turned into a federal case by a grumpy old man as short on hair as he was on humor. That's pretty funny. That's very creative. But essentially, what they're saying, that the common critic says, it's a story of some little kids innocently playing and some grumpy old man walking along the street, bald, grumpy old man. And the kids point out, hey, Baldy, get out of here, Baldy. And he has, he's so mean. He's such a curmudgeon. He's so cantankerous that this grumpy, bald man calls down a curse on them and God kills 42 of them with bears. Poor little innocent children, like what is going on here? That's the common critic's view of these things. Now, is that what really happened? As I speak today, our nation has just completed yet another federal election. We have had to sit through countless advertisements as each party does their best to paint their opponent in the absolute worst possible light. And they do this by showing the worst possible picture taken from the worst possible angle in the worst possible setting. And laid on top of that picture, they place the worst possible quote that they can find. More often than not, a quote taken entirely out of context. If you rely upon political advertising for your political information, more often than not, you're being misled. I would propose to you that the common critic's version of this incident from Elisha's life is a lot like a political ad. In fact, it's worse than a political ad because I would propose to you that the common critic's version is not even based upon fragments of truth. Let me show you what I mean and you be the final judge. We've seen what the common critics claim. Now let's look at what the scriptures actually describe. Today's incident didn't happen in a vacuum. I mean, it happened in a wider context. And understanding that wider context will aid us in understanding the specific events. It was sometime around 850 BC. The once mighty nation of Israel had undergone a civil war and was now divided into two nations. We'll just call them the North and the South. The South retained Jerusalem as their religious capital, while the North looked chiefly to the city of Bethel as their religious center. 
The problem was that the northern nation had wandered into some serious idolatry. In Bethel, the people of the northern kingdom were worshiping all kinds of pagan idols and doing all kinds of debauched things. Religiously speaking, the word Bethel back then became like the word Vegas today. It had some seedy religious connotations to it. Meanwhile, down south, Jerusalem was the place that God himself had chosen as the location of the religious ceremonies. And Jerusalem still had the original temple that Solomon had built. And the priests in Jerusalem were basically maintaining the worship of Yahweh as detailed in the Old Testament law. So there was this huge competition and rivalry between Bethel in the north and Jerusalem in the south, with Bethel representing an upstart, unauthorized, polluted worship, and Jerusalem representing the original, true worship. For years, a prophet named Elijah had been warning Bethel and the people of the north to change their ways. Elijah was a rock star amongst the people. He was known in both the north and the south as an incredibly powerful and godly man. As Elijah was nearing the end of his ministry, he took a younger prophet under his wing to groom him as his prophetic successor. This younger prophet was named Elisha. So Elijah was preparing Elisha to be his successor. In 2 Kings chapter 2 describes the passing of the prophetic torch from Elijah to Elisha. So Elijah, the mentor, was taken up to heaven in a visibly miraculous method. It, there's this huge drama of a chariot of fire and a whirlwind and a whole bunch of incredible stuff going on. And Elijah's mantle, his coat literally falls and is passed on to Elisha. It's an incredible description of what happened. And then Elisha, the successor, was immediately endorsed by God via visibly miraculous methods. For example, the waters of Jordan were parted. So just before Elijah died, he used his coat and, and, and the, the waters of the river of Jordan were parted so they could walk through. And then as soon as Elijah dies, Elisha goes to the Jordan River, takes that same mantle, that same coat, and parts the waters again himself. And then after that, the waters of Jericho were purified. He goes to Jericho and he purifies the water. Apparently, the, the water at that time was notoriously bad. And so uh, Elisha does another miraculous sign where he purifies the water so now they could all drink the water. And then the mockers of Bethel were silenced. And that actually brings us to today's passage. So the waters of the Jordan were, were parted, the waters of Jericho were purified, and then the mockers of Bethel were silenced. Now it's here, this third portion where the mockers are silenced, where digging into the details and looking closely at what the Bible actually says sheds some considerable light upon what really happened, what's really going on in these two verses. First of all, let's debunk the myth that we're dealing with an angry old man and some innocent little children. Remember, the common portrayal is that there's innocent little children playing by the roadside. A bald, angry old man comes along and they make fun of his bald head and he gets so angry at them for being humiliated and ridiculed. He curses them. God sends a couple bears and kills them all. Where did the idea that Elisha was an old man come from? 
It's nowhere in the passage. Elisha was a rookie. This was Elisha's first day on the job. After this event, Elisha would spend another 50, 5-0 years on the job. So Elisha was a relatively young man when this incident took place. So why did they call him Baldy? Well, evidently, Elisha suffered from a case of premature hair loss, and this was a source of ridicule for him. I feel his pain myself. What makes this even more a source of ridicule and sarcasm was the fact that his predecessor, Elijah, was known to be an incredibly hairy man. Seriously, in the chapter immediately before this, chapter 1, Elijah is described, even in his old age, as having a lot of hair. As the story is told in 2 Kings chapter 1, some people went to the king of the north claiming that some prophet had given them a message they were to pass on to the king. Look how the Bible describes the conversation. It'll be on your screen. The king asked them, what, what kind of a man was it who came to meet you and, and told you this? They replied, well, he had a garment of hair and had a leather belt around his waist. The king said, oh, I know who that was. That was Elijah the Tishbite. You're talking about a guy with a whole lot of hair? We're talking about Elijah. It couldn't have been the leather belt. Everybody wore leather belts back then, I'm sure. But a garment of hair, so much hair on his head that it's like he had a garment of hair, they said. That's Elijah. He's a hairy prophet everybody knows around here. So Elijah was known for having a thick head of hair, and Elisha was known for being prematurely bald. So playing off this visible difference, Elisha's critics were saying, Hey, nice hairline, buddy. Look at you, baldy. You're no Elijah. We're not afraid of you. Okay, but these are just innocent little children making innocent little taunts. Where do you get the idea that these are innocent little children? Well, doesn't the Bible call them boys in this passage? Yes, it does. But when you dig into the details, you realize that there's more going on and more being communicated than initially meets the eye. This was originally written in ancient Hebrew, and the word translated boys is the ancient Hebrew word neher. This ancient word can mean anything from a toddler to a young adult. For example, when Solomon took the throne in 1 Kings chapter 3, verse 7, he said, and I'm quoting him, but I'm only a little child and I don't know how to carry out my duties. Solomon used the Hebrew word nehar in that verse to describe himself, and there it's translated as little child. However, scholars estimate that Solomon was in his early 20s when he said that. So Solomon was clearly using the term in a figurative sense. He was saying, God, I'm immature. I'm lacking the wisdom and the insight needed to think and judge and rule wisely. The same Hebrew word was used in connection with another king who took the throne. King Rehoboam rose to power and had a key moment early in his reign. He had two groups of advisors offering two different bits of advice. The elder advisors were telling him to do one thing, and the younger advisors were telling him to do the opposite thing. In 1 Kings 12, verse 8, Scripture records, and I quote, But Rehoboam rejected the advice the elders gave him and consulted the young men who had grown up with him and were serving him. In that passage, the Hebrew word Nahar is translated as young men. It's the same Hebrew word describing Solomon. It's the same Hebrew word describing the people taunting Elisha. So how old were these young men that grew up with Rehoboam? 
Well, we know from 1 Kings 14.21 that Rehoboam was 41 years old at the date that when he said this. So the guys who grew up with him were at least in their 30s. So you can see that this term is not as narrow as the common critic would lead you to believe. This word is often used in scripture. In fact, in the very same book as the story of Elisha to describe immature or foolish young adults. So then, when you dig into the details, you soon realize that the common claim is not at all what the scripture actually describes. We are not dealing with an angry old man and little children. Well, what then are we dealing with? When you dig into the details, you realize that we are dealing with an organized mob of angry young adults. Look closely at what the writer of 2 Kings is telling you. Look closely at the scene that he's depicting. Elisha leaves Jericho and then he heads up to Bethel. Jericho and Bethel were quite close. The Bible says from there, Elisha went up to Bethel. So then, Elisha has just been assigned the role as Elijah's successor, and he's heading to the city that was the center of false worship. He was no doubt heading here to warn the false prophets and denounce the false worship of Bethel. Just prior to this trip, through some miraculous events like the parting of the waters of Jordan and the purifying of the waters of Jericho, God has clearly shown that there is a new prophetic sheriff in town. The mantle has literally been passed and a showdown is about to take place. So keep reading. It says, as he was walking along the road, some boys came out of the town and jeered at him. Now note this, Elijah had not yet reached Bethel. Elisha was on his way to Bethel and this group of young men tried to intercept him before he reached the city. The author says they came out of the town to meet up with Elisha. They knew what Elisha's message was and they rejected it. They knew who Elisha represented and they mocked him. These weren't innocent little neighborhood kids playing on the streets of Bethel. This was a huge traveling band of young men on a mission, traveling outside the walls of the city of Bethel. Now, how do we know it was a, a huge crowd? Do the math. There were at least 42 of them because that's how many were harmed by the two bears that attacked. Do you think that when the bears began attacking the first two, the other 40 just stood in line waiting their turn to be mauled? Of course not. These bears went on a rampage through a huge crowd of young men. And when it was all said and done, the bears had managed to do some level of damage to 42 of them. I'm sure some got away. Some scholars estimate that the crowd likely numbered somewhere between two and 300. Oh, and by the way, it's not a major point. However, while some likely perished, nowhere is the word killed ever used in this passage. The truth is that many people have survived being mauled by a bear, even when just one bear was focusing solely on one person, let alone two bears rampaging through a huge crowd. So while it doesn't really matter either way, it should be noted that saying 42 were mauled is not necessarily the same thing as saying 42 were killed. So when you add it all up, when you dig into the details, what the critics commonly claim and what scripture actually describes are two very different things. We are not dealing with an angry old man and little children. 
We are dealing with an organized mob of angry young adults, a mob fired up with religious zeal, a mob bound and determined to resist, reject, and revile the prophet who had just been anointed to succeed Elijah, the arch nemesis of the people of Bethel. These people were celebrating Elijah's departure like the munchkins were celebrating the death of the wicked witch. Elijah, the one who destroyed all of our prophets on Mount Carmel, is finally gone. We have nothing more to fear, they told themselves. In their minds, Elisha, this bald-headed young man, was no Elijah. So they mocked him, and they taunted him, and they jeered him, and they threatened him. We need to picture the scene the author is describing. How do large groups of angry men stirred up with religious zeal typically act? We've seen all kinds of footage of such chaos on our newscasts over the years. And hey, if you were here for the Stanley Cup riots in Vancouver not too long ago, you've seen it with your own eyes. I don't imagine this gang stood in a tidy line in front of Elisha at a safe distance No, I imagine this mob surrounded him to mock him and intimidate him, and if not, to eventually kill him. This was a crucial moment in Elisha's ministry. What happened at this moment would spread everywhere. How Elisha and God responded to these taunts and these tactics would determine the legitimacy of Elisha's ministry from that moment forward. So the Bible says Elisha turned around and looked at them and called down a curse on them in the name of the Lord. Now that phrase turned around tells me a lot. It tells me that these people were all around Elisha. I mean, think about it. They certainly didn't pass Elisha on the street, so he had to turn around and look back at them. No, they met him and they surrounded him. So he turned around and he looked at them all. And then Elisha did what every true prophet of God does. Elisha put their fate in the hands of God himself. Elisha didn't lash out at them out of his own anger. Elisha called upon God to deal with them. And God responded to Elisha's call. Then two bears came out of the woods and mauled 42 of the boys. As a result, the will of the weakened mob decreased and the word about Elisha's power increased. And people are still talking about it 3,000 years later. So why did this incident rate a mention in the Bible? And what can we learn from the, one of the stranger stories in the Bible? I sat and thought a lot about this. And I thought to myself, what is it about this passage that so infuriates people who do not know God? And what is it about this passage that even seems out of place for people who do know God? Why does everyone see this story as strange? The more I thought about it, the more I settled upon this observation, and it stands as today's big idea. Here it is. We are so accustomed to seeing God's mercy that we're shocked when we see God's justice. We are so accustomed to seeing God's mercy that we're shocked when we see God's justice. It's kind of like when you hear about lion tamers getting mauled by their lion. You know, you hear the story of famous lion tamers and they're out there, they're playing with their lions and they've got the chairs and and the whips and so on. And the lions are doing all sorts of cool things, tigers and lions, you know, dancing for them and up on their hind legs. And they look like these wonderfully trained lions and tigers. And then every couple years you get word of a lion or a tiger that has 
lashed out at their master, lashed out at their trainer and killed them or seriously harmed them. And people are shocked. Oh my goodness, how could that happen? And I read that and I think, what do you mean how could it happen? They're lions, they're tigers, that's their nature. Folks, God is a God of mercy and grace, but God is also a God of justice and holiness. We are so accustomed to seeing God's mercy that we're shocked when we see God's justice. We forget he's a God of justice. Isn't it interesting how we demand justice when we have been wrong, yet we get all confused and angry at God when he demands justice? We need to get a firm grip on reality, folks. Every one of those young men was created and owned by God. Every one of those young men owed their very existence to God. Yet every one of those young men had chosen to turn their back on God, to reject him, to revile him, and to mock his messengers. So what are the consequences of such actions? The Bible says the wages that such sin pays is death. In other words, just like when, when you do something that's a, a, a serious crime, you lose the right to walk out amongst the, the public. That's the wages of, of such crime. Well, when it comes to sin, any act of rebellion against God, the wages of our sin is death. That means that every one of those young men deserved to die. And they had deserved to die for years. Every one of those young men had lost their right to live. That means that every moment, every one of their lives was a gift of grace from God. Every breath they breathed was borrowed from God. They deserved death, but they experienced life. Now, do you realize that what was true for them is also true for you and me? The Bible says that none of us is righteous, not one. All have sinned, all have fallen short of the glory of God. I do not deserve to live. You do not deserve to live. I have sinned. You have sinned. Every breath I have, every heartbeat that I have is a gift of God's grace and mercy. I don't deserve it. I do not have a right to exist. I have given up all of that through my sin. When it came to that angry mob, that fateful day, up until that moment in time, God had been willing to look the other way in their lives, to be patient with them, to be gracious towards them, to be merciful to those young men. As God called out to them to change their ways, to turn back to him, but they refused. And in a moment, unexpected and unanticipated by them, God said, okay, time's up. No more mercy, no more grace, no more patience. No more looking the other way. You are finally going to get what your deeds deserve. What happened to them could happen to any one of us at any moment in time. The writer of Proverbs put it this way. Don't boast about tomorrow because you don't know what a day may bring. Those young men had no idea when they woke up that morning, when they joked and laughed together as they walked the path from Bethel to Jericho, that they were counting down their final steps on earth. They were so accustomed to experiencing God's mercy, they had no idea that God's justice was waiting for them just over the next hill. I dare say that many who are within the sound of my voice right now are living on the same razor's edge as that crowd of young men. Some of you are followers of Jesus Christ, but you are playing with fire. 
You know what it is to taste of the mercy of God. You know what it feels like to repent of your sin and receive God's grace. But you're in danger of going backwards on the path, back into your former ways. You don't realize it, but you are mocking God with your rebellion. You are treating his mercy like a filthy garment, like a covering for your sin. And the longer you continue to walk the path that you're walking, the harder it will be for you to hear God's voice and experience God's grace. Until you finally come to a day when your heart is so hard and your walk is so distant that you turn your back on the mercy you once knew. If that's you, please hear me. God is calling upon you today to return to him and experience the fullness of his love once again. He's waiting for you to restore you to the life that he has for you. Now, others are listening and you have never known what it is to be covered in God's grace. As you sit there, you are on the outside looking in when it comes to God's mercy. As you sit there, you're living under a cloud of judgment. Your sin hangs over your head like a dagger. And the full weight of justice could fall at any moment. Only God knows what the next second of your life holds. If you were to die at this moment, you would die rejecting the offer of God's mercy, destined to live separated from him forever. At this, the final moment of today's teaching, I want to offer you an opportunity to travel from judgment to mercy, from death to life. The Bible does say the wages of sin is death, but then it says, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. God is a God of mercy and grace, but God is also a God of justice and holiness. And in Jesus Christ on that cross, God's mercy and God's justice intersected. And that's the good news of the gospel. That's the message of the good news of Jesus, that he paid our moral debt he paid the price of our death. The wages that sin pays is death. So he paid my wages and he's willing to pay your wages to offer you the gift of eternal life. Have you received this? Have you received that gift? Don't be like that mob of young men. Don't be foolish. Don't be stubborn. Don't mock God. Stop rejecting his message and receive his love while you still have breath. Let's pray together, please, as we conclude today. God, we thank you for your mercy. And we also thank you for your truth and your justice. You're a God who's dependable. You're a God of truth and justice. That means we don't have to worry that we wake up one day and suddenly you're unjust and suddenly you're a liar. No, you are a God whose nature is dependable. You are truth, you're justice, but you're also gracious and merciful. You have made a way for us to be cleansed of our sin, to not have to fear your justice. So today, everyone who's watching and you've not yet accepted this gift of forgiveness and eternal life, I'm gonna pray a prayer. Agree with me as you ask God to forgive you, as you receive his gift of forgiveness and mercy. Or maybe you're watching today and you need to renew this in your heart, in your mind. Maybe you need to repent of some sin that you've allowed to build up in your life, even as a follower of Jesus. Either way, pray this prayer with me. God, I acknowledge my sin. I acknowledge I have been rebellious against you. I don't want to live that way any longer. And so I turn my back on that old way of living, on that sin, on that rebellion. 
and I accept your gift of mercy and grace. Come into my life. Fill me afresh and anew with your Holy Spirit. Change me and cleanse me. Renew my life that I might live the purpose that you designed for me to have. And give me the courage to tell somebody about this decision before my head hits the pillow tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. If you prayed that prayer, particularly for the first time, there's a number on the screen right now. Text that number, and we're not tricking you. You're not gonna be put on a mailing list. You're not joining Broadway Church. But someone would help you take the next step in your journey as you accept this gift of forgiveness and new life. God bless you. Thank you for being with us in this first week of the Stranger Stories series. There's other Stranger Stories coming up. Hope to see you next week. God bless you. Thank you for being with us at Broadway Church today.